This is an audiobook recording. The Oahu Front Written by Michael Logan, PhD Produced and distributed by Armadillo Audiobooks All characters and events depicted in the following recording are entirely fictional, however, historical context and references are meticulously accurate. This is the first installment of a multi-part novel delivered in serial audio chapters, available wherever reputable podcasts are distributed. Full text of the Oahu Front is available for pre-order. For details, please navigate to oahufront.com. Chapter 1 The meeting was set for 1930 on a Tuesday in February. The sun was setting over the color-soaked skyline of Honolulu. Sam Bars launched out of the angled garage of his Redwood home perched on the cliffside of Round Top Drive. From this vantage point, the sharp green face of the Diamond Head crater framed the left side of the city. The right side was bleached out by the setting sun. The city was serene, yet alive. Just overhead on a flat perch at the Tantalus Lookout, a crew of downtown scooter boys were loudly ripping wheelies to impress a group of round-top girls. Bars knew some of their parents from the Mid-Pacific Country Club over in Lonikai, on the east side of the island. I probably know the boys' families as well, he thought in reference to his periodic dealings in the darker side of paradise. Bars wound his way into the bowels of the city. They have no clue how much their world is changing, he thought as he passed the daily train of sunset seekers slowly making their way down the cliffside. When Bars arrived at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, the Roaring Twenties era, Pink Palace, was softly glowing. Its oversized tiki torches were just clocking in for the night shift. As the sun reluctantly clocked out, the hotel's smooth pink stucco was maintained to a weathered sheet perfection. Swaying palms made the rounded Moorish structure pulse with life. It was the sort of hotel that maintained its own signature perfume scent. Like the first hotel on Waikiki Beach, the white colonial-style Moana Surfrider, it catered to a price-insensitive clientele, who were nostalgic for an old Hollywood vibe. Bars usually avoided the cramped Waikiki Beach area altogether. He used the Pink Palace and Moana for meetings where a certain level of discretion could be achieved in the anonymity of the transient crowd. The valets and bellmen were usually too focused on extracting revenue from wealthy Asian tourists to take much notice. He circled the cavernous banyan tree at the center of the lush turning circle. Middle-aged valets jealously guarded this real estate in untucked pinkish button-down shirts. He tossed the keys of his boxy 1990-something Volvo to an unfamiliar face. Bars took a mental note to do some additional personnel vetting with the hotel's rotund and verbose daytime manager, Cal Nakashiro.
Through a series of unfortunate events, the rosacea-faced Nakashiro had come to be in Ba's periodic employ. This included using the Royal Hawaiian's dramatic cabaret-style ballroom on the beach side of the hotel as a sort of personal meeting room. Bars made his way through several arched passageways to the empty cabaret. The table was just as he left it earlier that morning when he had met with Nakashiro and a trusted porter to set up the room. The porter who had moved items around on their instructions had never seen his boss so deferent and accommodating. Yes, Mr. Bars, an excellent choice of linen, Nakashiro pandered, much to the annoyance of the other two. He must have some serious dirt on Nakashiro beyond the usual gambling debts, the porter thought. Indeed, Nakashiro had first entered Bar's orbit by getting in too deep in a backroom poker game. The nightly game took place in a particularly seedy part of Chinatown. It was held in a large industrial loft space above an open-air butcher shop, where brown peking ducks hung by the neck. That first night, Nakashiro had indulged too heavily in the poker room's complimentary bar. For roses in a fancy Blanton's bottle. He had gotten excited having turned a set of nines, and neglected to notice when another player, Andy Smalls, had somewhat obviously caught a straight on the river. There were four clubs on the board that also screamed caution. The hand cost Nakashiro $43,000 but was the start of a deeper multi-year debtor relationship. Smalls was a blackjack card counter and general creep who had been ejected out of most casinos in the western United States. He also happened to be a bar's asset and played the Chinatown poker game with the singular purpose of fishing for people like Nakashiro. The debt grew significantly in subsequent sittings as Nakashiro took out an increasing series of markers from the house, which was controlled by bars. Nakashiro, who was in the service business after all, found providing complimentary hospitality and the odd bit of information much easier than repaying cash. Bars' requests were always reasonable vis-a-vis -vis the sizable chunks of debt they offset. And Nakashiro even received protection and assistance from bars on a few occasions when he found himself at odds with low-level Chinatown gangsters. For example, there were periodic challenges in keeping undocumented call girls away from the hotel. While the Marriott Corporation owned the Pink Palace, bars owned its staff. And he protected them. He directed Smalls to dump the occasional pot to help Nakashiro maintain appearances among the other regulars, creeps, and fish. It was also intended to allow Nakashiro to preserve some sense of his own independence. The purpose of their relationship was not financial. Nakashiro, like Smalls, and many others were simply a means to a broader strategic end. Bars rarely traveled down the mountain twice in one day and never to oversee set up for a meeting. Both Nakashiro and the porter knew something interesting was brewing. Not the usual property developer, visiting military attaché, or ranking member of the Honolulu police. Perhaps a beautiful heiress to some notable family fortune, the porter imagined, 
as he placed the small trident forks used for lime-soaked pineapple. Neither dared to ask questions or telegraph their curiosity. On the first descent, Bars had requested the porter string up the heavy and dated velvet curtain used to close off the mouth of the short flight of steps down to the cabaret floor. The room was fairly large, yet was intimate with a short stage. It had hosted many formal evenings and had its own monogrammed plateware in gold trim. An early menu was proudly displayed in a museum case in homage to the era of champagne saucer pyramids. This gilded energy had dissipated with the Depression, followed by World War II, when the property and the Moana were enclosed in concertina wire and used exclusively for military purposes. In the 1950s, a Vegas-inspired ambience emerged, and the cabaret hosted many mainland crooners. These had been smoke-filled nights of drunken debauchery, with love songs and lewd jokes. Dressed in thinly-veiled innuendo, girls in hula skirts had made the rounds with trays of cigarettes, armagnac, and flower lays. This high-party era evolved with more mass tourism in the 1960s and 70s to a slightly more wholesome and family-focused ethos. Under the influence of the airlines and their spinsters on Madison Avenue who drove the traffic, the ballroom featured spectacular displays of local culture for the delight of middle America. Hula dancing, acrobatics, and fire tricks. The porter had placed a circular table just back from the edge of the cabaret stage on a large bamboo weave floor covering. The cloth selected by bars was covered with a square wicker thatch overlay. There was short centerpiece of taut pink bromeliad and weeping white angel trumpets. Small black and white porcelain figurines of pandas laying on their side propped up pink chopsticks. There were four place settings, complete with pineapple forks in anticipation of the imagined princess doll. Bars seemed less concerned with aesthetics, and more preoccupied with the table position. He paced out the distance from the table to the windowed outer edge of the room and walked purposely around the perimeter, looking back at the setting from various positions, as if to verify something puzzling. He inhaled, as he nodded his head in self-agreement. Bars thanked and dismissed the others. On the evening visit, the cabaret floor was cast in shadow. The only source of light was the stage's white and pink theatrical lighting bank. Nakashiro parted the heavy curtain to check on any last details before departing for the evening. He could see the shadowy figure of Bars at the back of the room, in the same spot where he left him earlier that morning. He was conspiring with a hulking, but lean figure. The wiry silhouette of a Belgian Malinois darted around the two men off lead. The dog snapped to a menacing focus at the sound or smell of Nakashiro. Two verbal clicks from its handler and the dog resumed patrol. The handler efficiently packed up a case of what appeared to Nakashiro to be electronic equipment resting on one of the tables. With a few inaudible words, the handler and dog exited the back doors, to the beachside promenade. He firmly closed the doors, testing the locks behind him. 
Baz's focus shifted to Nakashiro. He was 5 inch 11 and trim, with wavy hair. Well-mannered and manicured. He wore a stylish, slender suit which erred on the more formal side. Even the most powerful people in Hawaii wore fairly casual clothes by any other standard. While polished, he did have the distinctive mark of a working man. An operator. The scars of adolescent acne formed deep but somehow distinguished texture on Baz's upper and middle cheeks. He had a narrow face with no wrinkles around the eyes, which were bright, yet sunken below a strong brow. His haircut was that of a much younger man with waves framed by a tight fade on sides and back. This gave him a youthful look, despite a few shocks of grey. Bars was not heavily built, but had the look of tightly coiled strength and agility. He had slightly outsized forearms and trapezius, in comparison to the rest of his build. Walking briskly towards Nakashiro he carried himself with an almost fluid rhythm that was not characteristic of a military posture. He did have a certain obvious athleticism, like that of a swimmer or a point guard, but without the build for rugby or football. He wore a gold ring with a polished black square onyx on the small finger of his right hand. To the frumpy and floral Nakashiro, he had the look of someone who belonged in Berlin or the hills of Los Angeles, rather than in Hawaii. Thanks for your help, Cal. I've closed out January, he said plainly. I'll be away for a week or so, starting tomorrow. Stay away from Chinatown for the next few weeks, okay? He stated this more seriously, without really asking. Okay thank you Mr. Bars, Nakashiro responded. He was obviously excited to regain the equivalent of six months salary lost in January, and failed to appreciate the directive tone. Nakashiro mistook this as a suggestion in the theme of, do yourself a favor and take a break from the poker table, rather than as a distinct warning. I'm serious Cal. Bars reiterated, leaning forward and looking down the bridge of his nose. Of course Mr. Bars, he responded, still not grasping the caution related to the neighborhood itself, as opposed to Chinatown the poker game, as the regulars referred to it. Nakashiro did a once-over inspection of the table, adjusted some flatware, and exited through a backstage door. End of chapter 1 The Oahu Front Written by Michael Logan Produced and distributed by Armadillo Audio Books Full text of The Oahu Front is available for pre-order at theoahufront.com Coming up, next chapter Sam Bars has a run-in with the Chinatown drug trade that complicates his political mission on Oahu we meet some colorful characters in Bars's network, and learn more about his covert adversaries. Sam Bars considers his next move against the historical backdrop of Hawaii's bloody past. And, contested future.